From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad, the show that brings global issues home. Back in August, during the campaign, Donald Trump laid out what he felt the previous administration had gotten wrong in the Middle East. Libya is in ruins. Our ambassador and three other really brave Americans are dead, and ISIS has gained a new base of operations. Syria is in the midst of a disastrous civil war. ISIS controls large portions of territory. A refugee crisis now threatens Europe and the United States. In Egypt, terrorists have gained a foothold in the Sinai Desert near the Suez Canal, one of the most essential waterways of the world. Iraq is in chaos, and ISIS is on the loose. Iran, the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism, is now flush with $150 billion in cash released by the United States. Worst of all, the nuclear deal puts Iran, the number one state sponsor of radical Islamic terrorism, on a path to nuclear weapons. As president, Trump has sent mixed messages. He has talked about getting tougher in places like Iran and Syria. But he's also been highly critical of unilateral military engagement in the Middle East. One thing he's been unequivocal about is the goal of defeating ISIS, which has set up its so-called caliphate in areas encompassing big parts of Syria and Iraq. Trump talked about that in his speech to Congress in February. As promised, I directed the Department of Defense to develop a plan to demolish and destroy ISIS, a network of lawless savages that have slaughtered Muslims and Christians and men and women and children of all faiths and all beliefs. We will work with our allies, including our friends and allies in the Muslim world, to extinguish this vile enemy from our planet. The rhetoric is a lot more colorful than that of President Obama, but what about the underlying policy? Is it that different? When you actually scrape away a bit of the rhetoric, uh, I'm not uh, convinced that we have a significant difference. Ruel Markerecht, a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, he's written in the Weekly Standard advocating for a more hawkish approach to the Middle East. We'll have to see whether the American military buildup is real. We'll have to see where the American deployments, whether they increase at least in the southern Middle East and the Persian Gulf. And we'll have to see whether President Trump is willing to back a more aggressive policy against the Islamic Republic. It looks like President Trump is beginning to beef up the U.S. military presence in Syria and Iraq. Trump has also loosened restrictions for carrying out drone strikes, and he gave greater leeway to generals to directly approve anti-terrorist operations. But some of those strikes have had devastating results. News from Iraq, where residents say an American airstrike killed more than 100 civilians in western Mosul. If confirmed, it will have been the deadliest attack by the U.S. since it began fighting the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria in 2014. And there was the disastrous raid in January in Yemen, which claimed the life of a Navy SEAL, as well as more than 20 civilians, including women and children, and 14 al-Qaeda militants. Tonight, military officials assessing intelligence gathered from the raid in Yemen while investigating what went wrong, why civilians, including children, were killed. 
But it's likely we'll see more covert missions. Two of the administration's top leaders, Defense Secretary James Mattis and National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, have extensive experience using special operation teams. President Trump has indicated he favors using smaller forces over full-scale military attacks. What's unclear is the endgame. The Trump administration also faces the challenge of navigating in hostile countries like Syria, where U.S. influence has diminished. James Jeffrey is a former ambassador to Turkey and is now with the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. You need allies and friends who can split the risks and share the risks, share the costs, and help us. And that's something we have to restore in the Middle East. In this hour, Trump's foreign policy in the Middle East, how will it differ from President Obama's? How can he achieve his goal to destroy ISIS if he's not willing to engage in a larger war? It's a tall order. The State Department is normally where U.S. foreign policy begins. The secretary leads a department full of staffers whose mission is to carry out the president's foreign policy agenda. But with this president, many of those staffers don't exist. Scores of positions have yet to be filled and may never be filled. Trump's initial budget calls for the State Department to be cut by a third. Jennifer Strong reports on what a shrunken State Department in Washington could mean for countries around the world. There are nearly 120 senior executive jobs at the State Department considered to be of key importance. All of them require Senate confirmation. But first, the president must choose people to fill these jobs. As of April, that list still falls short by more than 100 names. Robert Ford is the former U.S. ambassador to Syria and deputy ambassador to Iraq. I asked him about the effect of these empty positions and whether he thinks there's a risk that the U.S. will be outpaced by other countries. Well, I think we're already starting to see that. Countries saying we can't rely on the Americans and therefore we're going to have to work more with ourselves. If the Americans can't do it, then we're going to have to step forward. That's good in one way. That's terrific. But they may reduce American influence. We will pay a price for that. Ford rattles off examples in Japan, in Europe, and at a United Nations conference on the future of Syria. The State Department had no high-level representative after the first day of that meeting. And this is talking about Syria, where we have over a 1,000 U.S. combat forces about to be engaged. We have daily U.S. Air Force bombing missions, drone missions. Wouldn't you think you'd want the State Department engaged at a high level about the political future of a country like that? Despite many rumors, Ford doesn't believe the State Department will be left without senior staff long term. Because if they do that, they will find that they have lots of career government employees, but they have no one to lead them, and certainly no one who would report back to the president directly. He says that doesn't match up with Trump's campaign promises. If the purpose was to drain the swamp, to use the expression from the Trump campaign, uh, then you wouldn't leave the creatures who have populated the swamps, the people in the bureaucracies, to run themselves. That wasn't the purpose either. These days, Ford is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, a nonpartisan think tank. I ask what's known about Trump's Middle East policy and how it differs from that of the last few presidents. We still don't have people to manage Middle East policy. The old ones from the Obama administration left in January. 
not only have they not been replaced, but we don't even have names to go before the Senate for confirmation. Matt Lee covers diplomacy for the Associated Press. I ask him the same question as he stands outside the State Department. We don't know a lot yet because, as with a lot of other things, this policy is under review. What we do know, though, is that the center of Mideast diplomacy for the United States has shifted from the State Department to the White House. It's been slowly moving in that direction over several presidencies. This shift is important, but not entirely new. Periods of low morale also happen. The work of former Secretary of State Colin Powell to boost morale in early 2001 is well documented. But a Secretary of State defending proposed cuts to the agency's budget, that is new. Secretary Tillerson is embracing the idea of cutting the State Department's budget. Matt Lee. In a sharp shift from previous efforts to cut the budget, we may see Congress adding more money, more than perhaps the Secretary of State wants. Trump's proposed budget is likely dead on arrival should it be sent to Congress. Equally clear is where Secretary of Defense James Mattis stands on this. If you don't fund the State Department fully, then I need to buy more ammunition, ultimately. Uh, So I think it's a cost-benefit ratio. The more that we put into the State Department's diplomacy, uh, hopefully the less we have to put into a military budget. That's Mattis testifying in 2013 before Congress as commander of CENTCOM, or U.S. Central Command. The working relationship between the secretaries of defense and state is critical, and the current chiefs may have one of the best relationships in recent memory. But these men cannot run massive agencies alone. Max Steyer is an expert on government staffing and presidential transitions. He's the president and CEO of the nonpartisan Partnership for Public Service. Steyer says the empty positions don't equal empty chairs. Existing staff fill the roles on a temporary basis. But there are consequences. It's a little bit like the substitute teacher. They may be an excellent educator, but the fact that they're temporary, that they're the substitute teacher, means that they're not perceived as having real authority and they themselves don't look at the long-term requirements of the job that they're performing. Steyer says that has any number of implications for their work. Also, it means that the White House ends up playing a a bigger role and typically a less well-informed role than would exist if you had uh, the agencies that are most involved in, in national security and in foreign affairs better represented at the table. Capacity is another issue. He says the White House simply isn't large enough to handle the sheer volume and diversity of issues that come up every day. Decisions don't get made in real time. Little problems blossom into big ones before they're actually addressed. And they can't be addressed because there's just not the capacity until they're urgent enough that they have to be. Many of these issues could be addressed without them becoming urgent if you get to them fast enough. But that doesn't mean Steyer believes all of the politically appointed positions at state must be filled. There are some deputy assistant secretary positions that sit on top of of office heads, and it's a one-to-one ratio. And that raises the question about why you have at least one of those layers. You could get rid of one of them without any problem to your function, and you would improve communication. He also doesn't believe people must have government experience to do these jobs well. He says Secretary Tillerson is a prime example. He's the only member of the cabinet that ran a larger organization in his prior job running ExxonMobil than he is doing in government. In almost all circumstances, 
those that are going into government are walking into a scale that they've never experienced before. Not so here. And he thinks Tillerson has many of the right skills and experiences to succeed at state. He is quite familiar with challenges of negotiation, the competing interests that are involved in resolving uh, international disputes. The AP's Matt Lee says Tillerson's experience may be why he's able to stand behind cutting the budget, because he can think organizationally on that scale. But while resources, policies, and staffing plans are under review, leaders here and abroad are growing impatient for details, including about how the administration plans to deal with ISIS. ISIS presents an ongoing challenge to our collective security. But as we have seen... It is not more powerful than we are when we stand together. That's Secretary Tillerson at an anti-ISIS conference he hosted with diplomats from 68 nations. We must thwart ISIS as it tries to maintain a presence on the ground and in cyberspace. We must enhance cooperation in border security, aviation security, law enforcement, financial sanctions, counter-messaging, and intelligence sharing. And we must keep making the investment in liberated areas in Iraq and Syria to help innocent people rebuild and stabilize their communities. Reaction includes a mix of relief and frustration. Relief that policies viewed largely as working seem likely to continue, and frustration at what some say are a lack of specifics, namely for what happens after coalition forces take ISIS strongholds. Any good American military commander knows that there's got to be a plan for what happens after ISIS. But if you ask what's the plan for government and management of local infrastructure, schools, water, hospitals, electricity, they don't have an answer. That's retired U.S. ambassador to Syria, Robert Ford. The Islamic State has been in full retreat now for more than a year. Ford believes if these areas are left with humanitarian crises and a political vacuum, the coalition could find itself unable to withdraw or facing a retooled ISIS a few years later. He says that's where the State Department comes in, but it requires senior staff, detailed policy, and resources. For America Abroad, I'm Jennifer Strong. President Trump's priority in the Middle East is to destroy ISIS, and that means heading to Syria. The administration's aim there is to build partnerships to win back ISIS-controlled territory, to stem the flow of refugees, and to find a way to bring stability. The task is a formidable one, and the United States will be forced into some uncomfortable alliances. To understand the current situation, we're going to go back a few years. Here's President Obama in 2013 calling for Bashar al-Assad to step down at a joint press conference with Turkish Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan. We both agree that Assad needs to go. He needs to transfer power to a transitional body. That is the only way that we're going to resolve this crisis. But strong talk from the Obama administration did not translate into strong action on the ground, something that frustrated opposition forces fighting against Assad. Nick Harris studies Middle East issues for the Center for a New American Security. The armed opposition movement as a whole has always complained that the United States never provided enough uh, military hardware, particularly surface-to-air missiles that they could use. They also saw the red line incident and the U.S.'s decision not 
to strike at the Assad government uh, to send a signal as another sign. It's a horrific situation. Since 2011, close to half a million people have been killed. 11 million more have been displaced. Not only has the country descended into civil war, a large part of it has fallen under the control of ISIS. Bashar al-Assad is happy to have the United States focus on ISIS instead of him. And so Syria has tacitly let ISIS spread. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley told reporters, our priority is no longer to sit and focus on getting Assad out. That's a quote. Secretary Tillerson echoed the sentiment during a March press conference in Turkey. I think the, the status and the longer term, longer term status of, pre- of President Assad will be decided by the Syrian people. So the focus is no longer Assad, it's ISIS. Meanwhile, Russia has used the pretense of fighting terror as an excuse to increase its presence in Syria. It has increased its military aid to the Assad government and more recently sent planes to conduct airstrikes. In Syria, the dominant player at this point is clearly the Russians, having intervened militarily, although they are mostly abetting Iranian and Iranian power and the use, Iran's use of Shia militias within Syria. Dennis Ross of the Washington Institute, he was an advisor to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. We're not much of a player right now in Syria, other than the fact that we will back the YPG, the Kurdish Protection Forces, and maybe Turkey, uh, and its use of some of the opposition as it deals with ISIS. We have to sort out that complication because Turkey doesn't want us arming the YPG to help liberate Raqqa, which is the capital of the so-called Islamic State. That said, the United States doesn't have any other option at the moment in Syria. There is no other force that can do what the YPG and its Arab allies can do. Henri Barkey is president of the Middle East program at the Wilson Center. He says the Trump administration doesn't appear to have any viable alternatives other than continuing the strategy already in place. And that means supporting the Kurds who are fighting ISIS, but they're also fighting a key American ally, Turkey. It is a genuine dilemma. One can be a little bit Machiavellic and say, look, at this point in time, our priority is to defeat ISIS. And if we don't do it, we're going to pay a huge price for it. Therefore, we defeat ISIS with the forces we have, which are the Syrian Kurds. And eventually, the Turkish-American relationship will improve Because the Turks also understand that they don't have any other choice. The United States is the only country Turkey can rely on. But not everyone is convinced using the Kurds is the best option. The Kurds have been at war with ISIS and have been at war with Sunni Arabs since ISIS arrived on the scene. So we are backing the wrong partners. Kimberly Kagan is the president of the Nonpartisan Institute for the Study of War. She recently co-authored an op-ed in The Wall Street Journal calling for the United States to change its strategy in Syria. The United States needs to show that it is on the side of the Sunni Arab population. And only then will it separate the population from ISIS and al-Qaeda. And how should it do that without engaging in a larger war? The new administration seems to be pursuing a supersized Obama strategy, and we see that as they are sending reinforcements to Raqqa, ISIS's capital in Syria, uh, and trying to accelerate operations there. 
they will fail. These operations may rid Raqqa of ISIS, but ISIS occupies other urban centers inside of Syria and inside of Iraq. ISIS will regrow and regenerate. Al-Qaeda is waiting for ISIS's removal and will come in to try to win over the Sunni populations in Raqqa uh, because the United States, in partnering with ethnically Kurdish forces, uh, is helping to impose a political settlement that the Sunni Arab population doesn't want. So uh, the United States has to show that we can and will help settle the conflict, help protect the Sunni population, and help protect that population against ISIS, al-Qaeda, and Assad. Okay, that sounds like a tall order in terms of troops and money. And it didn't seem that President Obama was willing to embroil the United States in a larger war. And it doesn't seem that President Trump is willing to do so either. The United States will have to commit some troops and some money to this effort. Syria is a terrible mess that is exporting violence into the region, into Europe, and ultimately into the United States. It endangers our homeland. But no one I know is advocating 150,000 troops on the ground in Syria. I certainly do not think that that kind of force requirement is necessary. But we cannot continue to formulate strategy in Syria on the basis of the number of troops on the ground. We must formulate our strategy in Syria on the basis of the tasks that we absolutely need to accomplish. The United States cannot go in uh, and stabilize all of Syria at once. The United States needs to establish uh, a Sunni force that can help stabilize the Sunni communities in parts of Syria and prove uh, that ISIS and al-Qaeda are wrong. They are not the only protectors of the Sunni. From there, the United States can take on subsequent phases of operations uh, that ultimately aim to negotiate a settlement with the regime and with the Russians and with the Iranians, but a settlement that the Sunni population can live with. Kimberly Kagan is the founder of the Institute for the Study of War. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Looking more broadly, the current plan for defeating ISIS has another problem, says Phyllis Bennis of the Institute for Policy Studies. That's a progressive think tank in Washington. ISIS can be defeated there and forced out, but most of them will survive and they will go somewhere else and they will reemerge as a more traditional terrorist organization, carrying out small, isolated attacks that create enormous fear in the West, in Europe, in the United States, wherever, but in a way that's not the same as acting as a conventional military. While defeating ISIS is the Trump administration's primary goal in Syria, another key objective is to stop the flow of Syrian refugees. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson addressed that issue this March during a speech at the State Department. 
While a more defined course of action in Syria is still coming together, I can say the United States will increase our pressure on ISIS and al-Qaeda and will work to establish interim zones of stability through ceasefires to allow refugees to go home. The administration's stated reason for wanting safe zones is twofold. One is to address the humanitarian crisis, but the other is to prevent the spread of refugees into Europe and the United States. As the Trump administration sees it, stopping that flow is a matter of national security. Again, here's Nick Harris of the Center for a New American Security. They view the terrorism track threat from terrorist organizations that are actively trying to build out safe havens in Syria and the refugee migrant track as running together now in one track. It's unclear what it would take to create safe zones or interim zones of stability. The administration is hoping Turkey and rebel partners will be able to take the lead as peacekeepers. But Ruel Mark Gracht of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies is skeptical of plans that rely on foreign forces. You know, you can't do safe zones without a U.S. troops. I'd guess, you know, that number's got to be fifteen to 20,000 U.S. soldiers. And that puts you into the war. Coming up, the administration's other major priority in the Middle East, countering Iran. It would not surprise me if we got up tomorrow and learn that there had been a confrontation in the Gulf between an American naval vessel and Revolutionary Guard fast boats. When we return, a look at the U.S.-Iran relationship. If you want to join the conversation, you can find us on Facebook or you can tweet us at America underscore abroad. You're listening to Trump's Approach to the Middle East on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. Perhaps one of the most polarizing moves made by the Obama administration was signing the Iran nuclear deal. That deal has many facets, but its main components involve lifting international sanctions in exchange for Iran reducing its stockpile of enriched uranium and the number of centrifuges it has to produce the uranium for at least a decade. Well, it's been two years since that deal was signed, and from all indications, Iran is complying with the terms. But the deal has not made Iran any friendlier towards the United States. Dennis Ross at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy says the nuclear agreement has emboldened Iran. The Iranians have had no problem doing the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action and then engaging in very aggressive destabilizing behavior in the rest of the region. Some of Iran's aggression has been aimed directly at the United States. In January, Iranian speedboats continued their campaign of provoking U.S. naval vessels in the Strait of Hormuz. And at one point, four of the Iranian boats came so close, so fast, to the USS Mahan, a U.S. Navy destroyer, that the Mahan issued several warnings and then fired warning shots to make the Iranians back off. And indeed, they did. And then in February, Iran conducted a ballistic missile test. The White House says it's investigating whether the launch violates a United Nations resolution calling on Iran not to carry out activities related to ballistic missiles capable of delivering nuclear weapons. Days later, the Trump administration issued new sanctions against Tehran. According to the U.S. Treasury Department website, 13 people and a dozen companies are being punished. Mark Dubowitz has co-authored numerous reports arguing against the signing of the Iran nuclear deal for his Washington think tank, the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He says a tougher posture is exactly what the Trump administration should be taking. 
we need to reinforce our military strength in the Gulf and send a message to the Iranians. The next time they harass a U.S. Navy warship, that ship will blow a Revolutionary Guard speedboat out of the water. We need to reestablish American credibility and American deterrence. And that's the only way to, to put the pressure on Iran, undermine its uh, aggressive posture in the Middle East, and bring the Iranians back to the table to negotiate a follow-on nuclear agreement that addresses many of our concerns and theirs as well. Whatever the threat, there is bipartisan consensus in Washington that Iran's actions need to be dealt with. The question, though, is how do you do that? Trita Parsi of the National Iranian American Council. We saw that in the last 37th of 38 years, the overwhelming approach has been through pressure. And frankly, it has not produced any results, because if it had, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. After 37 years, if pressure has been so amazing, why are we still talking about this? The only time we've actually seen a change in their behavior is through this nuclear deal, which was based not so much on pressure, but actually sitting down, investing in proper diplomacy, offering the other side incentives, giving concessions in order to get concessions, a real give and take. That's when we've seen a change. So far as the use of force with Iranians, I think the track record since the revolution is that if you want the Iranians to do something, you have to coerce them. Ruel Markarecht of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies disagrees. You have to box them in. Uh, otherwise, they're going to continue in the way that they, they want, and those ways are usually inimical to American interests. Uh, that's what the Islamic Revolution is all about. If you give them a carrot, they'll take it. And then they'll come back for more. So which approach is the Trump administration leaning toward? At times, it appears both, says Grecht. There's part of Mr. Trump, you might call it the mad bomber Mr. Trump, whether that's justified or not, that scares them. And then there's the other Mr. Trump, which is the one who wants to do Obama 2.0. And that is essentially distance the United States further from the Middle East that pleases the Iranians. As a candidate, Donald Trump called the Iran nuclear agreement the stupidest deal of all time, and pledged to work against it. My number one priority is to dismantle the disastrous deal with Iran. Though in an interview with Fox News that aired before the Super Bowl, Trump would not commit to ripping it up. Possibly you tear it up? We'll see what happens. I mean, we're going to see what happens. I can say this. They have total disregard for our country. Uh, They are the number one terrorist state. They're sending money all over the place and weapons uh, and can't do that. Trump's defense secretary, James Mattis, has defended the agreement. I think it is an imperfect arms control agreement. It's not a friendship treaty. But when America gives her word, we have to live up to it. I don't think abrogation is an option. Aaron David Miller of the Wilson Center says, as it stands, he doesn't see much wiggle room for President Trump when it comes to this nuclear agreement. This is an agreement with the Security Council, the P5 plus one, endorsed by UN Security Council resolution. I think renegotiation uh, is simply impossible. I think you're going to end up with an effort on the part of this administration for now to maintain what I think is going to be two parallel non-intersecting tracks. Number one is observance of the agreement, assuming the Iranians comply, uh, looking and trying to monitor areas where the Iranians are, are not compliant or trying to push the edges. So that's one track. The second is toughening up our response to Iranian behavior. It would not surprise me if we got up tomorrow and learned that there had been a confrontation in the Gulf between an American naval vessel 
and Revolutionary Guard fast boats. You're going to see a lot of these challenges and a lot of the tension in, in coming months between these two. James Jeffrey from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy says this is where Trump is really demonstrating a difference with Obama. President Obama was not into containing or checking Iran. He didn't see Iran in that same light. I think he was wrong, but he clearly saw Iran as a potential uh, partner, a stakeholder in the system. As he famously told the Saudis, you need to share the Middle East with Iran. President Trump does not want to have anybody share the region with uh, Iran, beginning with the United States. But Ruel Marc notes even if the tone changes, the big picture will most likely remain the same. That doesn't mean that there isn't a different disposition in the Trump White House. I think their attitudes to Iran are much more suspicious, uh, much more averse than those in the Obama administration that essentially wanted to hope that some new deal was possible with the Islamic Revolution and with the clerical elite. I don't think the folks in the Trump administration have any of those illusions. Uh, The deal, the nuclear deal, really is the hinge of, I would argue, America's weakness in the region. So if it stays, then probably more or less the rest of Obama's Middle Eastern policy will stay with it The one exception will be Israel, where President Trump doesn't appear very enthusiastic about the prospects of, you know, a final Palestinian-Israeli peace deal. But even there, who knows, maybe his notion of him as the great dealmaker will throw him into that imbroglio and will there, too, be essentially where we were with President Obama. We'll talk more about that conflict next. I am very pro-Israel. I've always been pro-Israel. Uh, I have many awards from Israel, many, many awards. I've contributed a lot of money to Israel. There's nobody more pro-Israel than I am. We have to protect it. You're listening to Trump's Approach to the Middle East on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. You're listening to Trump's Approach to the Middle East on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. All this hour, we've been looking at the Trump administration's policy in the Middle East and whether or not it reflects a new direction for the United States. We turn now to Israel. After eight years of significant political tension between President Obama and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the mood between President Trump and Netanyahu at their first meeting and press conference was positively chummy. I've known the president and I've known his family and his team for a long time. And there is no greater supporter of the Jewish people and the Jewish state than President Donald Trump. Also at the meeting, Prime Minister Netanyahu talked about a new approach with the Arab world. And I believe that the great opportunity for peace comes from a regional approach, from involving our newfound Arab partners in the pursuit of a broader peace and peace with the Palestinians. Netanyahu's strategy builds on the fact that the relationship between Israel and some of its Sunni Arab neighbors, at least privately, have never been stronger. Linda Gradstein reports from Jerusalem on whether they're strong enough to put a dent in one of the region's most intractable conflicts. Israel and Saudi Arabia have no diplomatic relations. And yet, recently, Saudi officials have been willing to meet Israeli officials publicly. General Yaakov Amidror, a former senior advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, describes his meeting with former Saudi intelligence chief Prince Turki al-Faisal. 
He said, the day that you reach an agreement with the Palestinians, together we can change the Middle East. There is nothing that will stop the combination of the Israeli money and Saudi Arabia in mind. And I think that when the Saudis and others in the Middle East are looking around and asking themselves, okay, who can help us to contain ISIS? Who can help us to contain the Iranians? Who can help us to change our economy? There is no one in the world who can do it better than the state of Israel, and they understand it. Israel and Saudi Arabia, as well as the Gulf states, share a common enemy, Iran, and its quest to develop a nuclear program. Dan Diker heads the Project for Counterpolitical Warfare at the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. The Arab world is clearly profoundly worried about developments in the Islamic Republic of Iran and their terror proxies around the Middle East. Everyone's calling it the radical Shiite crescent extending from Tehran all the way down actually into Gaza. Uh, and that convergence of concern between the Arab Sunni states, Israel, and now Washington again, with President Trump's administration, creates the possibility for real coordination and cooperation between Israel and what we have known loosely as the Arab world. In 2015, Israel opened an interest section in the United Arab Emirates, and there are extensive business ties between Israel and the Gulf countries valued at hundreds of millions of dollars. The Emirates reportedly use Israeli technology to secure their oil wells. Israeli media reports even claim that the Israeli army has offered to sell Saudi Arabia their famous Iron Dome technology, which Israel uses to stop rockets fired from the Gaza Strip. Saudi Arabia reportedly wanted the technology to defend Saudi territory from rockets from Yemen. Egypt and Jordan already have long-standing peace treaties with Israel and Netanyahu has reached out to more of the Arab world as efforts for a deal with the Palestinians have foundered. Netanyahu hopes his new Arab friends may be able to nudge the Palestinians back to negotiations. David Horowitz is the editor of the Times of Israel. In a Middle East where so many countries are concerned about Iran and the pernicious influence of Iran, he's argued that that has brought a commonality of interest between countries like Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states and obviously Jordan and Egypt, with which Israel has formal peace treaties, and has wanted to believe or has purported to believe that if Israel can deepen its relations more widely across this region, then that wider framework might uh, lead to the Palestinians being sort of prodded in a more compromising direction by other Arab parties, and therefore that Israel's warming ties with parts of the Arab world might ultimately lead to an improvement and, and better prospects of progress with the Palestinians. Security ties between Israel and Egypt have grown closer under Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi as Israel has shared intelligence to help Sisi fight Islamic State in the Sinai Desert, which also borders on Israel. But there have been no serious Israeli-Palestinian negotiations for four years. Egyptian ambassador to Israel, Hazem Khairat, told a recent conference in Tel Aviv that there remains no alternative to the two-state solution for an independent Palestinian state next to Israel. All of this is stable. Channels of communication between both sides are open in a constructive dialogue to achieve our mutual goals in reaching stability and prosperity in the region and defeating terrorism. The two-state solution 
is the only possible way forward. If one really wants to reach peace, true, it would be up to both parties to reach their final agreement through direct negotiations. But we also have to recognize that the role of the international community, especially the United States, is indispensable in helping the parties reach this agreement and support them to implement it. Palestinian officials say they will make sure that they are not sidelined. Senior official Jibril Rajoub says Arab states know that the Palestinians cannot be ignored. He says the best chance for a deal is the Arab Peace Initiative, which calls for a complete Israeli withdrawal from the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. In the Arab summit, we have to ask the Arabs to reassure everybody that the only game on town is the two-state solution. And the Arab initiative still alive. And also we will continue cooperation with all Arab states, with Jordanians, with Saudis, with Egyptians. But there is a new development, which is also part of our strategy. We have in America a new administration. President Trump has invited Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas to the White House amid declarations that Trump wants a new Israeli-Palestinian agreement. Without that agreement, it does not seem likely that the Gulf states will establish official diplomatic relations with Israel. Again, General Ami Dror. I don't see those countries uh, enhancing their relations with Israel to the level in which it would be declared publicly before we have something with the Palestinians, even not a full agreement, but something with the Palestinians. In a way, those countries became prisoners of their own propaganda. And they told their people so many years that Israel is an enemy, that it is occupying the Palestinians, and so on and so forth. Today, we know for sure, meeting many uh, people from those countries, that they don't care about the Palestinians. They don't care about the details of the agreement that Israel will reach with with the Palestinians. But they need it before they declare the open relations with, with Israel. Yet whether openly or under the table, Israel's relations with Saudi Arabia and the Gulf are likely to continue to expand. I'm Linda Gradstein in Jerusalem. Back in Washington, there's optimism and urgency for this new path forward. We have to find ways to start with making some progress. Dennis Ross served as envoy to the Middle East and led President Bill Clinton's push for peace in the 1990s. He later was an advisor to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Ross says despite all the obstacles, there is still reason to be optimistic. Here, what I'd like to see is the Trump administration take advantage of the fact that it's a new administration. Uh, both sides, and, and all three sides, the Israelis, Palestinians, and the Arabs, seem to have an interest in wanting to build a relationship with the Trump administration. Mark Dubowitz, CEO of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, a Washington think tank devoted to fighting terrorism and promoting freedom, sees this new approach as a potential to break free from what he views as the flawed policies of the Obama administration. We can't keep making the same mistake over and over again. We've tried for decades to bring the Israelis and Palestinians to come some kind of peaceful resolution. It's failed, and it's failed at a huge cost in, in lives. And I think expanding the, the scope of the negotiation and bringing in our Arab allies perhaps opens up more opportunities for a successful resolution. But are these Arab allies truly ready to come to the table? 
Robert Wexler thinks it'll take more movement on Israel's part to make that happen. Wexler is a former Democratic member of Congress from Florida and currently president of the S. Daniel Abraham Center for Middle East Peace. He says putting an end to Israeli settlements is key to getting the Sunni Arab states to negotiate. In order for the Sunni Arab states to be more forthcoming, they're going to need to sense that the Israeli government is committed to progress. And right now, the Israeli government is not perceived as being committed to progress. Not when they announce 6,500 settlements or something of that nature. Um, And not when they have a legalization that, in effect, confiscates certain types of Palestinian land with compensation being paid but undesired by the Palestinians, possibly. Who in their right mind in Riyadh or who in their right mind in Bahrain or any of those states is going to have a belief and a confidence in an Israeli government that pursues that type of path? So hopefully, with President Trump leading, Prime Minister Netanyahu will pursue a path that is conducive to the Sunni Arab world making the types of decisions that are required politically and substantively to bring the countries together. So are there new dynamics in play that can end the stalemate over the peace process? I pose that question to Aaron David Miller. He's currently vice president at the Wilson Center for Scholars. I think there is one thing that is different. There's no question. It's undeniable that a community coincidence of interest has emerged between Israel and several key Sunni Arab states, the Emiratis, the Saudis, the Egyptians, and the Jordanians. Um, Particularly in the case of the Emiratis and Saudis, they are responding, they and the Israelis, to mutual and common interests and threats. On one hand, you have a rising Iran that is not all powerful, but clearly is making its influence felt throughout the region. And on the other hand, there's the threat from the Sunni jihadis, mm-hmm. ISIS and the all of the al-Qaeda derivatives. So, yeah, there's no question. The Egyptian-Israeli relationship, better probably than any point since the peace treaty was signed in 1979. And there's a lot of what I guess you could describe as under-the-table context on the intel, probably commercial enterprises that are are going on between Israel and these Arab states. The question is whether or not this coincidence of interest will translate into actual breakthroughs with respect to the Israeli-Palestinian issue. That is a proposition yet to be tested. And I suspect that what Mr. Netanyahu and Mr. Trump will find is that, sure, the Arabs will be willing to reach out to the Israelis. Look at the 2002 Arab Peace Initiative. But there will be a price and the price will not be cheap. And would that include not building settlements? Well, this is an interesting question. Mr. Netanyahu himself, I think, alluded that there might be a way to induce some restraint on the settlements issue. And and as you remember, he did agree to a de facto sort of freeze, not pertaining to East Jerusalem, but to the West Bank in 2010. I think that there will be a demand by the Arab states that during a period of negotiation, if in fact any of this can be worked out, that there is a significant slowdown. Freeze in the sense that you're stopping settlement activity, uh, both in the West Bank and in Israel, is unclear. Now, any significant deal cannot be made without the United States participating. But I'm wondering what the credibility is now, keeping in mind uh, Donald Trump's attempt at a travel ban from seven majority Muslim nations and his vow to go after ISIS. What is his credibility now in the larger Middle East? 
in terms of being able to come in and work with the Arab states, Israel and the Palestinians for a peace deal? I mean, I think it depends which Arab state and on which issue. Uh, he has done two things, I think, that are very welcome to both the Saudis and the Egyptians. Number one, he has toughened up his policy with respect to Iran, and it's clear that whatever improvement there may or may not have been during the Obama administration in the U.S.-Iranian bilateral relationship, that relationship is essentially frozen, or more likely, frankly, it's going to deteriorate. That makes the Saudis and, and also the Israelis very happy. Second, clearly, he has put forth a view of the world which is very risk-averse when it comes to the United States interceding, meddling, let alone nation-building in this region or in any other. And what that means to someone like Abdel Fattah Sisi in Egypt is that he is persuaded, and I think I am too, that the Trump administration is going to give any kind of human rights uh, issue a pass. Uh, you may also see uh, a greater willingness to acquiesce in uh, Bashar Assad's uh, efforts to consolidate his own control and power because Mr. Trump is interested in um, cutting some sort of deal, he alleges, or opines with Mr. Putin. So I think in that sense, there is credibility. Whether or not uh, Donald Trump is trusted by these Arab leaders, whether or not they believe he's prepared to apply the kind of not just honey uh, in, in a negotiation between the Israelis and the Palestinians, but the ample amounts of vinegar that need to be applied to pressure and cajoling, I think we're, we're a long way away from the Arabs basically reaching any bottom line judgment on that. That's Aaron David Miller at the Woodrow Wilson Center. So whether or not the Trump administration is likely to usher in dramatic new foreign policy in the Middle East is still unknown. He has assembled an experienced team of military advisors who are well aware of the various dangers and pitfalls. During the campaign, Donald Trump promised a relatively isolationist foreign policy. But he's discovering that it's impossible to go after one foreign policy goal, like getting rid of ISIS, without engaging in the broader region. So far, that engagement is mainly taking the form of increased military force. We have yet to see whether Donald Trump will engage in serious diplomacy, too. This Hour of America Abroad was written and produced by Rob Sachs and edited by Margaret Evans and Helen Barrington, with additional production help from Flan Williams. Special thanks to Patty Daniels from Vermont Public Radio. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra and Joel Stein at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the America Abroad or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website at PRI.org, where you can find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI Public Radio International.